Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them, and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement, and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. The first thing to say is Happy New Year. I hope you had a great Christmas break and are looking forward to everything that 2019 has to bring. I wanted to start this year off with a bang, and today's guest is just the person to do that. We recorded this interview late last year, but it was so good that I wanted to hold it back and make it the first episode of 2019. So who is it? Who is today's guest? Who has that honour of the first episode of Climate Consulting for 2019? Well, today's guest is Harry Gaskell, Chief Innovation Officer for EY UK and Ireland. What is a Chief Innovation Officer? Well, that's something that we discuss in detail in today's show. But at its most basic, Harry is responsible for identifying emerging technologies to launch new platforms and products to help EY improve its clients' businesses. Prior to taking that role, Harry was the managing partner of EY's UK and Ireland advisory business, which he grew from nothing to $250 during his time at the helm. In addition to his work with EY, Harry is the chair of the Employers Network for Equality and Inclusion, chair of the Finance Committee for the University of Arts London, and an angel investor and mentor to a number of innovative startups. Harry was a fantastic guest with a truly unique perspective on the consulting industry and how it's going to change over the coming years. 
If you are looking to understand how you can future-proof your career and get to the top in the industry, or any industry for that matter, then you're going to love this conversation. We cover a whole host of topics, including what the consultancy of the future will look like and how the skills that that firm needs and you want to equip yourself with will change. The impacts that these changes will have on the traditional pyramid consulting business model and real-world examples of how EY's use of emerging technology is resulting in them having to look at and answer these questions right now, how to foster a culture of innovation within your organisation and the common mistakes that Harry sees both consulting firms and large corporates make when it comes to innovation. And finally, why actually taking some time out of consulting could be the best thing for your long-term consulting career success. Harry was as open as he was insightful, and this episode has a huge amount for everyone. Whether you are a consultant just starting out or a managing partner running your own firm, I know you're going to get a lot from what Harry has to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Harry Gaskell. Hi there, Harry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. We've got so much to talk about today. We're in your fantastic office here that's like something I've never seen before that we will come on to. (laughs) But I actually wanted to start with what we were just talking about, because I think it's, it's a topic that I know a lot of people struggle with. And it's actually the topic that our mutual associate, Karina and Jim, who have been on this show, are trying to solve with their business, Grow Happy. And that's actually the challenge of career journey, because it's something that, and it might be a time of life where I am at the moment, it might just be the, the age we're in. I get a lot of friends and listeners just unsure on where to take their career. And I know it's something you've spoken about, and you made the point that actually the consulting career that you had will not be the consulting career your your graduate intake who have, say, come in this year will have. It'd be, it'd be great to start there just by what you mean by that and how that career journey in consulting and the world of work is changing. No, of course. I mean, I mean, work is work is changing and, and will change beyond recognition in the next 20 years. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But if you if you just think about the consult the traditional consulting career, you know, you, you would arrive as as Jim and Karina did as, as graduates in in somewhere, and you would rise through the consulting ranks, you know, become a manager, a senior manager, and eventually a partner. And and you could do that at one firm. I mean, that was, that was a, a realistic ambition when I started out, which is a, a kind of in the late Middle Ages. And, um, you know, and, and that's that's absolutely not going to be the case these days. In, in fact, I, I think if I ever came across, as a client, if I ever came across somebody who'd only ever been a consultant, who'd, who'd you know, maybe they'd moved companies, if that's all they'd ever done, then I think I wouldn't hire them on principle. Because, because I just think to give good advice in a world which is moving at the speed it's moving, you have to have a much more varied background. You have to have much more varied experiences than that would ever give you. And I think that we'll dig into the how people should do it right in your, to your perspective. But that client piece is quite an interesting one, is if that's the world you're given your role, you're seeing clients start to ask for, to say, actually, yeah. I, I want people who have lived it, not just grown up in a consulting environment. If your goal is to make partner and lead a consulting firm, how do you approach that? How do you balance that that desire from clients and that need to have that, in, I guess you'd say, industry perspective, yeah. but also enough consulting experience and time running projects and leading projects to actually be able to deliver that advice and those projects effectively? Well, I think the trick actually is to stop thinking about making partner, if you like. So I think, I think the way to think about it is to say, what I want to do is become a really, really good advisor 
to, mm. to top people in business or government or wherever you want to advise people. What, what do I need to do to give me the experience to do that? So working for somebody like EY, you know, one of the big consulting firms might be a good thing to do for a few years because that gives you a certain set of experiences. But then you probably want to go and do one of the jobs you know, that your clients are going to be doing later on and try, and try that out because it's a fundamentally different experience to being a consultant, to being an advisor. And perhaps you want to do something different. So maybe you want to go and do a master's or a PhD or maybe you want to go and spend a year wandering around the world or maybe you want to go and work for a not-for-profit not or a charity for a while. Maybe you want to do some politics for a bit. All, all of those things I've just listed will be tremendously helpful when it comes to trying to advise a CEO where to take their company or how to implement a big change. And, and I, think, I think those, you know, thinking about the kind of experiences you can pick up and what you can learn from those is probably the right way to think about it rather than how do I make partner. So I agree with all of those. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm planning my jaunt around the world for the end of next year. <laughs> Only doing good. three months. I it's more so I just, I, I couldn't spend that long away from my own bed. Um, but that's a personal, <laughs> a personal thing. I, something, though, within what you've talked about there, because yeah. there's a whole gamut of, of life experiences you've highlighted. And actually, one thing that occurred to me that you might counsel others on is all of what you said, you know, when I listen to it, it sounds right. And I'm sure listeners are thinking, yeah, that's what I should do. But then there's an implicit tension potentially of if I've gone into consulting for personal, you know, in part for personal reasons to make partner because of the QDOS salary, whatever it is that comes with that, actually, there's an element of risk, call it, call it what you will, that sort of peer pressure, let's say, of okay, actually, I'm going to leave my, you know, stellar consulting career where I've climbed into the grades quicker than everyone else. And I'm now going to go and work for a, yeah. a company or a not-for-profit or go traveling. Actually, how do you advise people to to overcome that and give them the confidence that actually it will help them in the long term, not hinder them? Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? If you, if you see your friends kind of, you know, at least on paper doing better than you, right? Rising yeah. more quickly than you. That's absolutely right. I think the thing, the thing to keep in mind throughout is, is what am I learning? And as a consultant, you are more valuable the more you learn. And so you've, you've got to ask yourself the question, forget what my job looks like on paper. And actually forget how much I'm earning, really. Mm. What, what, what's, what am I learning? If, if my rate of learning is high and, and, and keeps rising, then you're doing well. And your friends who are now at a higher grade somewhere earning more money, what are they learning? Mm. I mean, and that, that's probably the, the real comparison. But I guess at, at root... This, you know, doing this kind of thing is quite courageous because it does mean moving outside what's comfortable for you on a re reasonably frequent basis. And, and that's a difficult thing to do. And therefore, that, it's probably not for everybody. We'll dive into all of this. And the reason I, I think it's so good to talk about this specific topic is I do know, and we'll, we'll come on to the changing face of the industry, but it, it fundamentally is changing. I know it's something that you've talked about. And actually, how you approach that career path is particularly if your goal is to make partner i think that's probably one of the one of the first questions is what is your goal but actually you mentioned their learning how should people balance the i guess what you'd call that learning in a, a non-consulting environment with what you might call doing the time in consulting so you know we all as consultants there's a fairly traditional albeit changing career path of certain number of years at grade which can be accelerated or slowed down by other things but actually how do you balance that learning and getting out with doing enough time in consulting to, I guess you could say, earn the stripes to, to climb to where you want? 
Yeah, it, it, it is quite difficult. I mean, the, the actually, if, if you're going into consulting at a graduate level, spending a bit of time and let's say getting to manager gives you a chance to go into lots of really interesting things once you leave. So, so it is well worth picking up the basic field craft of being a consultant, not just for the kudos it gives you, you know, particularly if you're working for one of the bigger firms. It's, it's you know, that brand kind of goes with you when you go too. So that, that's pretty good. But also the, the, the basic field craft in how to talk to people, how to get information from them, how to analyze that information, how to represent the conclusions of that analysis, how to tell stories about that. That's incredibly helpful. I mean, that, that's brilliant learning. So I, I mean, I think it is well worth spending some foundational years learning all of that. And that may be what, you know, five or six years. That's, that's over, we're all working till we're 80 or 100 now. <laughs> so five or six years is no time at all in that context. Oh, completely. And I think um, the rate it's going, we'll be working a lot past 100 <laughs> for my generation. I think it brings us quite nicely on to actually more structurally the changing face of consulting. Yeah. Because like you say, the, the world where there is a path to partner and con- the consulting model is built on a pyramid is to, well, I'm looks like it's changing. Yeah. I know, so I know EY have a big push around the gig economy. A number of the other larger firms do as well. And to your point, if if people are going to be leaving consulting to explore other avenues and maybe come back, actually, what does this mean for the industry? And actually, how do firms need to approach this at a structural level to ensure they maintain a sustainable business that's built for today and not built for, to your point, when you started in consulting? Yeah. I mean, no one knows the answer to that question, <laughs> which, which is really interesting at the moment. I mean, there, there are lots of people trying to answer it. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very interesting. Having built a practice at EY, and we started building that in 2005, so about 13 years ago, we built that on the, on the model of consulting that's been in use for around about 100 years. If I were building it today, I'd build it on a completely different model. So it wouldn't be a pyramid, and it would have a very different set of skills in it. So what would what would I build today? And I don't know whether this would work. This, this is what I'd try. I mean, I think first of all, I, I would I would go and recruit some people with traditional consulting skills. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for people who know how to to build relationships and manage relationships, and people who don't know how to run projects and programs, and people who you know know how to do basic analysis. And so I, I would definitely at the core of my new business, I'd have some people who looked. Look like traditional consultants. Yeah. Then, however, what I'd do is I would I would hire some brilliant data scientists. Okay. So I, you know, in the old world, what you what you do to do a consulting project is you flood your client with junior people who gather information, analyze that information. Now, now that can mostly be done using machines. Mm-hmm. I mean, both you know, you let's we'll take a download from all of the systems, analyze all of that data, and and figure out from that data. What are, what are the main conclusions about that business's health or otherwise? So I would hire brilliant data scientists. And if I was doing that, I would get them from all over the world. So they're, they're as likely to be working in Ukraine or China as they are in London. So I'd be hiring people who I might never meet or I might only ever meet occasionally. Um, so I'd get some great data scientists. And, and then I'd go and hire some great storytellers. Because I think if the last few years have taught us anything, it's, it's that increasingly... People don't, you don't persuade people based on fact and data. You persuade them on, on great stories. So a great story, an authentic storyteller is, is what you need if you want to sell work and if you want to sell the conclusions of your, of your project as well. So I would go and hire some storytellers. And, and then, of course, I would go and hire some technologists because increasingly the solution to people's problems is going to be technology and it's particularly going to be artificial intelligence. So I would hire a lot of people who understood AI and machine learning and that would be my new business. So it would look very, very different to the old one. A lot, of, a lot of the people who worked for me wouldn't have full-time contracts. They would be gig workers, and I think that would probably suit them as, mm. as well as me. 
and and yeah, the pyramid's gone. That is a fantastic model, and I think we'll let's hold on that because I think that presents a very different model of the world, like you talked about. And I do want to come on to actually what that means for firms that are set up to the old model. But what does that you mentioned around how the old model was predicated on? getting a a large number of juniors in to analyze data. And in that, there's an implicit assumption that it's a long tail project. So you might be on site for three, six, 12 months. Actually, how does, in your new world, that consulting engagement and relationship change? Or does it change? Yeah, actually, funny enough, in some ways, it goes back to the future. So if you think about consulting in its original days, it was very much about, in theory, wise consultants who had a lot of experience advising their business colleagues about what to do. I mean, there weren't these armies of people. And, and I think that's, that's what the job is going to be much more in the future. I think, I think you're going to find wise kind of experienced consultants backed up by data analysis done mostly by machines. So, so I, think, I think in some ways it's going to go back to where it was. And I'll ask this because I, I imagine there's someone listening who's thinking, who's junior and thinking, well, like you say, in that world where we move back towards the more senior person with the advisory and a small core team, Actually, how do I, if I'm trying to future-proof my skills, we've talked about experience, but actually what should I be looking at? What should I be focusing on? Well, the, the stuff the machines can't do. And at the moment, that's going to be, that's going to be you know, the kind of conversation we're having at the moment. Mm. So we're, you know, we're talking to each other. You, you know, we, I may be persuading you in my argument. <laughs> that's not something where a machine can do. So, so focusing on the relationship side of things is going to be incredibly important. And also then being, being creative. Again, machines struggle to be creative. So if, if I wanted a career in consulting now, I mean, I, I would learn the basics of consulting still, but I, I would try and develop a far broader set of skills and they will be based around human interaction and they'll be based around creativity. I'm interested in your take on it because you mentioned as well in terms of those creative and I guess uh, human only skills, the, the storytelling. Mm. And like you say, it's it's a skill that I think is only become more important, as you say, machines have taken over and actually translating that for people. But it's something that I don't think many consultants do very well, or at least... <laughs> I, think, I think as a profession, we're terrible at it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of logic, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of numbers and facts. And actually, you only have to look at LinkedIn and a lot of what's on there is this client needed this, we delivered this. And actually, to your point, you know, that's not Harry Potter. That's not a story. No. How important is it that firms actually embrace that? And, and what should they be thinking about to do that? What should they be thinking about in terms of how, how, how to embrace? How to embrace, yeah. and then yes, sort of actually build that skill and then tell those stories. Well, I think two things to say. I mean, the, the first is the, is the need for that data analysis is still there mm. because because the best stories are, are actually based on on the truth, or at least a kind of grain, <laughs> grain of truth, not just made up. You'd hope so. You'd hope so. So <laughs> if, if you know if you're advising a, a company to to do something new in terms of strategy, you'd kind of hope that, that the story you're going to tell them is based on some strategic analysis. So, so that, that's the first thing to say. But the, the, the second thing then is, is you can teach people to tell stories just like you can teach them to do anything else. I mean, stories, stories in a way are quite formulaic. I mean, there's one theory which says there are only five stories in the world. And so you can, you, you know, it's something you can train people to do. Do you know what that model is, just so I can share it with others? I'll, <laughs> no, I don't. No, I'll, um, I'll look it up and I'll send it over and we can put it in the will, show notes. Yeah, I, I'll, and if I can... One of the problems of being old is you, is you know a lot can never remember any detail. But I'll, I'll see if I can remember. The, uh, <laughs> that's a problem with being yeah. young as well. I can assure you. Okay. Yeah. And so so no, that, that's right. So for, so you you can teach storytelling, but actually, of course, some people are just much naturally better at it than others. And and I think that's that's one of the the areas that consulting firms are going to have to look at is is recruiting different kinds of people. So for example, when we were, I remember a problem we were trying to solve recently, 
We had a room full of, kind of, if you like, the usual suspects, except for we had someone who's, who'd, who'd not done the usual things at college. He'd been to the Royal College of Art and spent most of his time at the Royal College of Art when he wasn't painting, being an active Trotskyite. And, 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 and when we wanted, you know, when we wanted to present our conclusion, he was the guy who actually gave us the frame to put it in that enabled a, a bunch of a persuasive argument to be an absolutely compelling argument. And I think we probably need more ex-Trotskyites from art schools in the future. We, we might touch it, but I know, EY, actually, you've taken some quite radical steps in how you approach graduate recruitment. Yeah. But for people listening to this, to exactly that point, the world you've painted is very different from the traditional consulting world where everyone broadly has the same skills, the same background, the same A-levels, university degree. Actually, how do you put in place the structures to get those art school ex-Trotskyites and actually remove that, I guess, unconscious or conscious bias when your recruitment team who are used to scanning for Russell Group economics business graduates suddenly are asked to get data scientists and Trotskyites from China, Ukraine, all the places yeah. you mentioned. Actually, I mean, funny enough, our recruitment team are really, really brilliant at this. They're not the problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, they, they told us that the traditional methods weren't working before we realised it ourselves. So if, if you look at, I mean, EY has removed any any kind of academic qualification now for it, for, mm. its, for its graduate jobs. I mean, if you think you've got to be a graduate, but that's pretty much it. And, and it was really the recruitment team that, that first pushed that issue for us. So that, so they're actually pretty pretty good when it when it comes to that. It's actually more people like me. It, it's the it's the existing consultants. I mean, because obviously what we do unconsciously is we look for people like us. We you know we don't look for for diverse candidates in, in the broader sense. So, so we have to very consciously think about doing that. And, and you know, removing academic qualifications is a real help. And, and judging people based on, on much broader tests and tests of rather than, you know, can you show me a CV I like the look of? Can, you, can, you, you know, can your brain solve the problems we want to solve for our clients? That's, that's the way of cutting through the bias. This might be too low level, so stop me if it is. But to exactly that point of, you need to remove the unconscious bias. So the different levels we've talked about, the data, the stories, the relationships, how do you, you create a test that actually identifies the best across those areas? Or do you deliberately not and identify who might have a data skill set versus a, a storytelling skill set? And then to your point, bring in those people into their different function areas within the team. I mean, I mean the, the tests obviously vary a little bit when, I mean, the basic graduate tests don't, mm. but when you're bringing in experienced hires, the tests you give them vary a little bit, a little bit, depending on on um, you know which part of the business you're in, which part of the practice you're in. But but in some ways, the, the the hardest bit is not that; it's not the rational side of it. No, it's actually the cultural side of it. Mm. So you know, I mean, in in if you're a big four consultant, traditionally you wander around with a suit and tie on, and, and you go and work in a glass palace by the Thames somewhere. <laughs> that's, that's that's culturally yeah. that's what you do. Now, a few years ago, we we bought a um, a brilliant user experience and design consultancy who are based just down the road here in Shoreditch. Now, you know, the, the joke we had was we must never bring them into our head office in Moorlanton Place because if we if they ever see what we're like, they'll they'll kind of leave <laughs> instantly, and the problem will be a cultural fit. Yeah, kind of thing. So, so you know, you have to. We're we're now sitting in a, a building which is a million miles away from that that corporate glass palace, and a lot of the people we want to employ in future will be perfectly happy here, but they won't be happy in our head office, and vice versa. If you you know you feel comfortable wearing a suit and tie, the sort of environment we're sitting in right now is is probably <laughs> going to make you feel pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uh, 
it is a world away from what you've described, and we'll, we'll come on to it. It's been a while since I've been in, in an office like this. We've moved out of London, so you don't get things right. this cool yeah. outside of where we are in Bath. But to that point around the cultural side, because I'd agree, I think you can structure these things, and there's a lot of theory around how to recruit and unconscious bias. But actually, what do you find yourself saying, Or because I'm sure you've had these conversations, where you say what you've just said to me, that we need these people in this new world, and one of your colleagues or a partner somewhere else, doesn't you know, doesn't have to be a colleague, says, Harry, that all sounds great in, in that land, but we've got a business, we've got return on investment we need to deliver, and the best way to do that is get more of these people yeah. who can deliver projects for clients today. How do you try and can show those people the new world, or what do you say to them? Well, I, I think you, you can't, I mean, you can never convince them by argument. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what you have to do is, is show them a different experience. So if, if you can say, look, so rather than produce the usual kind of proposal, what this team over here did to win a piece of work was to produce a brilliant video. So, you know, that will convince people way, way more than any, anything you can tell them, any argument you can make to them. You can, you can show them a result. And people, consultants, I've found, are, are frankly herd animals. So, so if, <laughs> if, they, if, if they see something good, if they see one of their colleagues doing well by trying something new, they'll, they'll probably begin to do it too. So that's definitely the way of, of, of it. <laughs> it. It feels like you, you obviously had a, a successful career, or still have a successful career, but you built the firm in the old world. And obviously, yeah. it, I think, have, have embraced the new one, to your point, the... There are some traits in the consulting world and the world we operate where they'd probably need to change and things like that. Before we move on, though, what is it that you think, because you obviously built the EY practice, and we'll, we'll talk about that if we have time. I've, I've started stopping myself promising things that I can't deliver. <laughs> um, but actually, what if anyone's looking to launch their own practice? What's fundamentally the same? What are things that you use to successfully create that practice that are still here and will continue into the future? Well, I mean, actually, I started my first consulting business when I was 23, and it, you know, we grew to a whole 20 people. It's very exciting. And but, but actually, the, you know, what, what we started that business by doing was was finding a set of problems that people weren't, you know, the existing businesses weren't solving well, and recruiting some people with the right expertise to solve them. And you can do that today. You'll probably be able to do that in 20 years' time. It's it's just the way you solve those problems will change a little bit. But but at, at one level, fundamentally. If I'm a consultant and you're a client, you have a problem I can solve. I, I can convince you personally that I can solve your problem, then I'm going to be able to start a small consulting business. Yeah. The question really is whether I can then grow that and scale that and make it a large consulting business. And, 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 and that's, that's much more difficult now, I think, than it was 10 years ago or, or 30 years ago. So it wasn't something I had planned to talk about. And I'll be honest, I, my research is obviously lacking in it. But I, you can't say something like my first consulting business, I founded at 23 and, and grew to 20 people without me asking about it. Because there's a number of people who listen to this podcast who have aspirations to be consulting entrepreneurs. Yeah. And again, the common perception is you have to be 30, 35, probably have got to senior manager, director in a big firm before doing that. Yeah. I'd love to actually just find out about those early days and what led you to start that business and actually the steps you took to make it successful and grow it to that point at what was a an extremely young age in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, mean it, I, I, I started out as a coder. I mean, I did a physics degree and went into coding mm. things and, and went to work for, at the time, what was quite a large technology business these days it would be a minnow but, but, and, and, and really enjoyed coding I mean I like I like solving problems and what I found though was we were producing systems that that didn't make our clients happy 
And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the system. It was fine, but it wasn't solving the problem that, that they needed to solve. And the problem they needed to solve wasn't a technology problem. It was actually a kind of business problem. And, and so what I said, I mean, I, th I thought, therefore, about could I sort of set up a small consultancy that would kind of tackle that? and thought about doing it on my own. But actually what I did was I said to my boss at the time at this technology company, here's a new line of business for us. You know, we do technology, but we could move into this thing too. And um, this was the late 80s when, frankly, you could plant a stick in the ground and it would grow into a tree. And, and so to his credit, he said, yeah, okay, you know, have some money and try and build this business for us. So that's what we did. And of course, I did the most obvious thing I could think of doing, which was to recruit some of my mates from college to be the, the first few staff. And, and that's how we started this business. We, we piggybacked on the technology company's clients and, and that's how we got our leads. And frankly, we were quite shambolic to start with, but, but we were good enough that, that we could get business. And once we got business, we got a reputation, we got bigger and that's how consulting businesses work. So yeah. UI works. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah, that's how, it, that's how it happened. And I won't spend too long on this, but, when you're actually doing that, because again, 23 is a very young age to be, so even make that approach. Yeah. What were the, the questions you asked yourself or, or what was the self-talk when you were doing that? To think, oh, hang on, at, at 23, I can go and launch this consulting business and grow it. Well, at 23, you don't know you can't do things. I mean, that's one of the great things about, <laughs> it's one of the great things about being true. young. I mean, you, you've actually no real idea what it takes to start a business. So you, you take the obvious steps and they seem to work, so you take the next few obvious steps. There's a bit, I suppose, probably in your late 20s, early 30s, where you, you understand a little bit more the complexity of the world and that makes you more fearful. And of course, you, you know, most people do things like find a partner and sometimes they have kids and maybe they have a house and a mortgage. And all of that makes you more risk averse as well. So you're gonna start a business, you know, start one before you realize how hard it is. <laughs> and, before, and before you have, all of those constraints in your in your in the rest of your life and it'll bring us back to innovation and i do then i want to to come on to actually your role now because i i think to the conversation we've had around the changing face of consultancy your your role in itself is a sort of landmark in that change and show, showcases how the industry is changing but we talked about actually how the world of consultants changed if you were starting that business again where would you be focusing? Where should 23-year-olds now listening to this actually, what is it they should be getting that skill set if they want to start a consulting business as young as you did? Well, it, it, if you're going to start a consulting business today, I, mean, I think they'll be different in two ways. First of, first of all, there'll be a lot more technology involved in it. So I would advise anybody starting out in consulting, actually I would advise anybody starting out in anything to understand artificial intelligence because, because that's, that's the key technology that, that's going to change consulting and it's going to change many other things as well. So that, that will probably be the, you know, the first piece of advice I would give people. The second then would be I would probably advise them to think about changing the traditional model, which is based on, which is issue-based, if you like. So, you, you, you know, I'm a consultant, I'll go along, I'll talk to you, I'll ask you what's keeping you awake at night, what are the big issues, and then I'll try and design a solution to the thing that's keeping you awake at night. What, what I might be inclined to do now, actually, is, is with my bit of technology, to get very good at solving a particular kind of problem. So let's, let's imagine that you, you're spending millions on marketing, like most people spending millions on marketing, you don't really know what works. And there are now some pretty good analytic tools, which can, it won't tell you precisely what works and what the, what the precise return on investment is for every pound you spend, but it'll give you directionally, it'll give you a much better idea about where you're deriving value. So instead of going along and asking you what's keeping you awake at night, I might go along and say, I can save you 30% of your marketing budget, or I can make your marketing spend 30% more effective in return for £50,000. So I'm, I, might, I might actually 
go to a much more kind of product-based transactional mode now to start my business. That's a really interesting take. And I think you caught me on the marketing side just because this is is my area of focus. And actually, that model you talk about of actually moving from issues, so let's say you have a problem with your marketing and me giving you a solution to me having a proposal, there is an implicit challenge in something like that, that actually your client has to be willing to make a change. So if we take marketing... Most large corporates still market like it was the 80s, still use television, big banner ads, big press ads, when all of the leaders in the field and all of the companies who are doing it well don't and all focus on influencer and social media, for instance. But actually, if the people you're trying to appeal to are, let's call it old world, how do you take a proposition like that out? If I say I can save you 30%, but that's also going to include stopping all of your TV ads and all of your um, billboard ads, how do you overcome that nervousness of the future and that sort of bias towards what's worked before? Well, unless I'm McKinsey. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is unless I, unless I have an, um, you know, a brand which has an overwhelming track record of giving strategic advice over the years, mm. then I'm going to make a different pitch, which is to say, tell you what, give me that, that little corner of your budget. Mm. Give me that one product. You know, give, or maybe give me that country. And let me try my idea out there. And, and, if I, and let me try it. If that experiment works, then we'll scale it up. And I, and I think that's that's really the way of of selling these kind of things these days. I mean, you see fewer and fewer of these enormous, big strategic transformation programs, and you see many more little experiments which get scaled if they work. And that that's a much better way of selling stuff these days, particularly to skeptical people. Yeah, re- really good advice. And I'd like to come to AI because it brings us nicely onto broader innovation and just how the world's changing. And I. I'm really keen to get your take because you've mentioned a couple of times how you AI is the future and that's where you're focusing and putting a lot of stock in people's time. I see in corporates, everyone is embracing innovation, which is good. But at the same time, there are some firms where it feels more like innovation is being done. It's the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> you know, it's the, yeah. everyone has a yeah. POC on something or other. How do you advise? So I'm, I'm firmly with you that technology can help improve a business and take it to the next level. But how do you advise clients to actually do it in the right way so they are delivering value with AI and not just throwing buzzwords around a boardroom to make it look like they are? I mean, innovation theatre is, is the sort of... The, I, li- I like that. For the, blockchain the, bingo is the one I that, heard. That's right. I like that. Um, I mean, at one level now, I mean, if, particularly if you're a, a public company, unless you are doing a bit of theatre, then your investors are going to be, going to be kind of worried. So you, you probably have to do a little bit of that. But, but it, I mean, what, I, what I would say to them is, is treat it like any other technology change. And we've had a few now. You know, we, Technology first started coming into business in the 50s and 60s. We've been at this for a while. It, at one level, this, this is no different to any other technology change. You should be investing in it if it is going to make you money. And so go and find some people to advise you who can explain how either this is going to help you improve your existing business or allow you to go into new businesses that you're not currently in and unless they can present you a, a really good rational case for the, for doing that you know plus a story if you like then don't do it i mean you know you you may need as i say you may need just a kind of you know, a little bit of theater but really unless someone can come to you with a solid business case don't bother and how important is it to factor in because you mentioned there around the business case and, and actually the roi is Understanding the the strategic elements, because to your point around the theatre, I've seen some companies where it feels very tactical. It's yeah. almost, we, we want to say we use AI, so we've gone to this bit of our business and put AI in. Yeah. How much should people be looking at this top-down versus more of a 
bottom-up style approach with POCs and yeah. tests. You need to do both. I mean, I mean, it, it, it just does depend to some extent what business you're in. But let's so let's just pick a, a straightforward business that everyone understands. Let, let's imagine you're running a trucking company. So what does AI mean to you if you're running a trucking company? It means that reasonably soon we're going to have autonomous trucks coming along. So that means you're going to have to get rid of your existing fleet and you're going to have to buy a whole new fleet of trucks and then you've got a problem, what do you do with your drivers? So you, you probably need to be thinking about all of this a few years in advance of these changes coming along. And of course, the tricky bit is you don't really know when they're coming along. I mean, this is probably within, well, it's certainly within the next 20 years, may well be within the next 10, probably not within the next five. But, but you need to, st- I mean, that will be yeah. a fundamental change to the way your business operates. So that, that's a, a straightforward example. More recently, we had, a, we had a, an airport company come to us. Okay. And say, you know, what, what do we, do, you know, do we have to care about AI and technology or not? Which is an intelligent question to answer. And it turns out, yes, they did need to, to, to worry about it. And for reasons that aren't at all obvious to start with. So, so first of all, airports make their money not from planes landing. They used to do it that way. But almost all of their money these days comes from two sources. From retail, from all the shopping you do before you get on your plane, or the food you eat before you get on your plane, and from car parking. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that. I've never no. thought before we did this piece of work. And, and so uh, autonomous vehicles are going to destroy your car parking revenue. Mm. Everybody you know, will turn up in their autonomous car, it'll drop them off and it'll, it'll go back home. They're not going to be parking their cars for two weeks. And secondly, that, you know, retail is changing as well. Now, and that, that's much less certain. I mean, it may be that actually you're still going to want to spend an hour or two shopping before you get on your plane. Maybe that'll be an, a pleasant start of your holiday. Right. I mean, but maybe it won't. I mean, maybe you'll actually you'll buy everything you need for your holiday online before you go, and all that revenue disappears too. So what do you do about that? And, and that's what, really what every business should be doing. It should be thinking about not only how can AI improve what I do today, but what's AI going to do to my business in 5, 10, 20 years' time, and how do I prepare for that? How do you forecast out to those, sort of, those levels? So you mentioned there autonomous vehicles, which there's been a rise in the, yeah. the conversation about them. But then the when are they coming in is much less certain. And then also when will they be adopted? Because once they're in, they're probably expensive and then it'll take a while to filter down. How should clients or how do you help clients actually forecast out to any level of certainty to make those strategy decisions? Well, the, I mean, the, the way to do it is, is not to try and do a single forecast and say, right, you know, we, we've crunched the data, we've analysed everything, and we reckon the answer is seven years. <laughs> you know, so on, on the 14th of March. Everyone will have them. Everyone yeah. will have them. I mean, I mean the, the thing to do is, is, to, is to work out what are the scenarios. You know, so three or, three or four scenarios, develop plans on the basis of, of all of that, and, and then keep watching the situation, keep experimenting, and you'll figure out which of those scenarios is going to come true and therefore how you have to react to it. But I mean, Brexit should give people a whole load of practice in this because, because <laughs> none of us know how that's going to end and therefore everybody's got different scenarios on the game. Yeah, very, very, very true. Um, <laughs> Benefit uh, of Brexit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's um, one, of the, one of the few. Um, and actually, the other side of that coin is that Obviously, like you mentioned, it, it, people are focusing on technology, which is good, and they're, they're looking to the future of where they can take this. One of the challenges, to your point around the, the sort of the AI theatre or the technology theatre, is if I say AI in a boardroom, it gets a lot of attention. It, people go, that's interesting, we yeah. should talk about that. But I think that to an extent that's come at the expense of 
what you might call more traditional business change. So instead of thinking about how we can reorganize our customer services to, and our customer journey to deliver better uh, experience, a company might go, we'll just look at AI because it's it's a better solution. But to what extent do people need a sort of foundation or a hygiene level of operating performance or efficiency or just organizational health before they start moving into these technologies in a big way so that they avoid creating almost an upside down pyramid to to try and visualize it of some great technology on top, but a really poor foundation at the bottom? I mean, you you always need to worry about if you're an established company, particularly if you're a big incumbent company, you, you always need to worry about organisational performance. I mean, if, if you think about how transformations go wrong, one of the most common ways they go wrong is, is that people just stop doing today's business while they're building tomorrow's. You know, you, yeah. you, to use a kind of terrible cliche, you, you do need to kind of you know, refit the engines in flight. You need to keep things moving. And so basic, if you can improve your basic business today, if there's a business case for doing that, you should be doing that, as well as some experiments that might lead you to your to your future business and your future revenue streams. You need to be able to do both. I mean, you need to be able to walk and chew gum. And, and you know, as humans, we find that difficult sometimes. Yeah, and I, I, I really like that metaphor of walk and chew, chew gum because I think that is the, like you say, people either do one or the other. Yeah. And actually, just to our conversation right back at the start around actually that skill set for, for consultants, because if you're a company and you should be doing both, then you're, to your point around what, executives want from advisors they probably want advisors who can do both yeah. how do you balance that do you get on a mix of projects from an ai project to a delivery project is it you focus on one and pick the others up in the margin how how do you advise more junior colleagues to get that what i guess would be a rounded view of yeah. of the organization it, it's difficult isn't it because you want both breadth and depth mm. and how do you get that and, and the answer the, the only answer to that is really is over time i mean it, it this is and this is part of the problem with a consulting career that, that you can only get the the breadth and the depth you need by working on a variety of different things over a number of years. It, it, it isn't really something you can do very effectively over two or three years. But I would also say that, that as well as, you know, whatever, whatever your resourcing department deals you, <laughs> um, you I, mean, I, think it, I mean, I think your free time, your spare time is incredibly important as well because you can pick up some of the skills you need more easily actually outside your, your day job, if you like, than inside your day job. Um, How so? Well, I mean, I mean, supposing you want to, you know, gain experience of what it's like to be on the board of an organisation. On the traditional route, you're probably going to be picking that up in your 50s, yeah. you know, when you're on the board of BP or Shell or whatever it happens to be. On the other hand, if you want to go and, you know, find a charity that you're really interested in mm-hmm. with, a, with, with some really basic business knowledge, they'll probably put you on, on, on the board today. Not of Oxfam, you know, but, but, <laughs> of, but of a smaller, more local charity. So you, you can get a whole range of governance experience of recruiting people, maybe even recruiting the chief executive in your 20s or 30s by doing stuff around the day job. I hadn't ever thought of that, but it's a really good piece of advice and actually... I think sometimes to the conversation around focusing too much on one goal can sometimes get lost. And to your point, people think the board of BP and they don't think the board of the charity around the corner that might be looking for people. Um, no, really, really like that. And be good to actually bring us on to, we've talked about innovation, actually your role, because you are the chief innovation officer. And actually that is a, it's a relatively new role in the the corporate lexicon. It's a relatively new role for EY. Actually, it'd be great to start with what that role is and why EY decided that they 
they needed one and why you decided you wanted to take it. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a good story, actually. I mean, I, I was, um, and we need to go back three years, and I, I was running the consulting business in EY, and I was nagging my boss, who, who is our chairman, Steve Varley, who, who was the person who, who set up the, the consulting business. We were the two people who set it up back in, the, uh, in 2005. And I was nagging Steve and saying to him, look, the, the, the technology we're seeing coming along is going to fundamentally change our clients and, and our own business in ways that we that are much greater than we've ever experienced before. We should do something about this across the firm, not just consulting, but in, in assurance and, and transactions and tax as well. And I, I nagged him about it for a while, and he basically completely ignored me. And being a sort of polite chap, my mother has always taught me that if someone's ignoring you, you should be quiet. So I, I shut <laughs> up, and, and, and pretty much the moment I shut up, he said to me, you know, Harry, I, th I think there's some technology coming along that, that is really important, and, and we should have a look at it. Would you like to do it? And I, of course, I said, "Brilliant idea, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. We should, we should go and do this." And he said, "I think you should become the chief digital officer." And I said, "What do you mean by that?" And he said, "I don't really know. Why don't you spend three months figuring out what the job is, and then we'll go and talk to the leadership team. And if they agree that's the job, then then you can go and do it." And so that's what I did. I, I took three, not three months off quite, but I spent three months traveling around the world, the EY world, and other places. Went out to California, of course read a lot of books, and came back. And the first thing I said is not chief digital officer, it's chief innovation officer. Digital is a terrible word, which we should all stop using. And what we agreed is, is that really it had the, the job had two parts. So first of all, it was to help our clients. All of the, I mean, not just AI, but things like blockchain, virtual reality, augmented reality, all these kind of things. Uh, our clients were struggling with how to, to deal with these technologies, and they, they needed help. So we had to build a much better capability to help them than we currently had. So that's part one of the job. And the second part of the job was to disrupt ourselves before others could disrupt ourselves. If you look at what we do in EY and any of the big four, then somewhere between about 60 and 80% of what we currently do will end up being done by technology within the next five or 10 years. And what that means is, unless we can design and adopt that technology before other people, those bits of our business are gonna to be toast. So that's the first consequence. And the second consequence is, is, unless we want to shrink, we'd better find some new things to do once all of those things get automated. So my, my job has two parts. It's firstly helping clients, and the second bit is, is helping EY. So EY has a 150-year history, and it would be nice if it had a 150-year future too. Yeah. We'll come on to actually that transition, because to the point around the replace the engine in flight, I think mm. that's a really interesting area to the, to the role you've taken. I want to just pause on your three months time finding what yeah. the role means. And actually, you mentioned there you read a lot of books, you traveled the world. What were the experience or books or conversations that actually had the biggest impact on you in, in shaping what your role would become? There the, the probably isn't one book or, or conversation. I mean, I, 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 I very deliberately had lots and, and got lots of quite contradictory advice. Which was, which was, you know, which, which you can synthesise, and, and you know, I, I suppose the, if I had to pick one conversation, it would be, it would be from someone in San Francisco. I had a pal out there who, who offered to get, to, you know, for the, the price of beer and pizza, offered to get some of her friends together, and we spent an evening saying, how would you destroy EY? You know, how would you get rid of it? How would you attack it? And there was one guy, actually, and frankly, most of the ways they would attack us were, were dumb and superficial, which was, which was kind of quite reassuring. But, but one of the, I mean, one guy said to me on this evening, he said, actually, you know, there's not going to be one competitor 
you know, a new entrant who comes along and destroys your whole business. Actually, what's going to happen is that your business will get nibbled to death. And what he meant by that is actually what, what the big four, the big four doesn't have a single business. It doesn't even have four businesses. It probably has around about 20 or 30. And each of those businesses will get disrupted in a different way at a different time. And that, that's an incredibly helpful insight because it gives you a clue about how you change EY. You don't change it all at once. You, you change the bits that are get nibbled first, leaving the other bits to, to, to go continue merrily on their very successful way mm. while you're fixing the bits that are closer to the edge of disruption. So that was probably the, the one conversation that was most helpful, I suppose. And that's a, a really interesting take on it. And like you say, actually, probably the, that is the crux of the challenge, isn't it? It's not that you'll get the, big, the fifth of the big five won't come along and knock you over. It's all of the little, either little businesses or do you see that coming more from the market fragmenting further? Or do you, do you see, to your point, EY is a multitude of businesses and it's you'll get a Google or a, a big competitor pop into one space and then another. So is it federation taking small nibbles from the small nibble or is it each area is going to get challenged by one potential competitor over time? I, I think unfortunately it's going, to be, it, it's going to be different types of competitors in different places. So, I mean, if you think about our tax business for the moment, I mean, just, just actually because that's closest to the edge of disruption, moment, it's closer than consulting. What, what will our competitors there will, will, I think, be a combination of, of very small players. The so people who are providing tax and accounting software for small businesses mm. will, will, will figure out how to begin to do that for larger businesses. So they'll, they'll effectively they'll be giving tax advice to large businesses, which is what we do. So they'll, they'll move into their market, into our market rather, with, with their products. I think our other competitors there are going to be the big, big kids like SAP and Salesforce and Oracle who will start building tax advice modules into their ERP systems. Yeah. So I, so I think our, our, our challenges will be a mixture of the incredibly small and the incredibly large. And that's going to be very difficult to figure out competitive strategies for both of those types of players. And I think that will be true across the, the rest of our business too, our consulting business too. Sounds like quite a quite a fun but a challenge yeah. challenge you've got. And to that point around, because it was going to be the question of actually how you how you deliver the change. And, and you said you don't try and eat the whole cake, you bite a little bit off yeah. at a time. And how do you approach and then manage that? So you, you mentioned that your tax business is probably the one you're going to have to look at first. Yeah. How do you change an entrenched business within an ecosystem of other businesses? Because yeah. just to to jump to my head, there, there's one challenge of changing the business itself, which is a big one, and then changing it so it's fit for the modern world while consistent with the yeah. wider business. How, how do you approach those challenges? Um, well, if you go to Silicon Valley, they'll, they'll tell you the way you do it is that you don't try and change the existing business. You, you, you create a new business, you know, with some kids in jeans uh, in Shoreditch or somewhere or Silicon Valley, <laughs> and, and you build a new business and then eventually you just turn the old business off and the new business replaces the old business. So that's, that's pretty much the orthodoxy of innovation advice. That's, that is, we're doing the complete opposite of that. And the reason we're doing that is because mo most of the orthodoxy comes from business-to-consumer business, uh, businesses, and we're a business-to-business -business organization. And, and also because we're a partnership. And the way, it, the way we sell stuff is through the relationships our partners have with our clients. So if we're going to try and replicate our existing lines of business using technology, we're going to have to do it through that, to start with at least, through that distribution channel, through our partners. Therefore, we've got to get them on board, and therefore we've got to change our existing business. So we're trying to do something that everybody in Silicon Valley and everybody on innovation courses at Stanford University will tell you you can't, can't be done. So that's, that, that's the fun bit. And, and the way we're trying to do it is, 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 is by starting small and scaling up. So we're, we're, we're setting up 
teams in each of our of our businesses at the moment, in each of our service lines, who are working on ways of doing what we currently do, but with technology. So let me give you a tax example. This is two years old now. We developed a, a product for capital allowances tax. You don't need, I mean, you don't need to know what that is. But basically what it did is, is it, it's a piece of machine learning and it takes the work that a, a junior tax person, or you know, very similar to a junior consultant, would do in about 15 hours, and it does it in three seconds. And so, having built that, wow was the reaction of all of the tax partners too. So they, they wanted to, first of all, they wanted to use that and take it out to market. But secondly, they then said, okay, well, this is down at the simple end of tax. Can we do this for more complicated stuff? And the answer is, with more work and as technology develops, yes, we can. So we're now beginning to do corporate taxation this way too. So if you're a, you know, if you're a corporate, not yet Shell or BP, perhaps, but, but, but a, a kind of medium to large sized, you know, UK based organization will take a download from your ERP system, we'll feed it into our machine learning, and out will pop in about half an hour, out will pop the answer of how much tax you should pay. And, and obviously at this point, humans get involved and check whether the machine's got it right, but the machine tells them where it's doubtful about the, the answers. Yeah. And so, you know, that is currently being piloted, but that will utterly transform that bit of the business. So, you know, you, you, you start small, build enthusiasm, build bigger solutions. You mentioned there, because it sounds like a fantastic solution in, from uh, some property investment I do. I, I'm familiar with capital allowances, and it's quite a, well, not complicated. It's a, as interesting area as you get in tax from my personal perspective. Apologies to anyone listening as a, as a tax advisor. And, yeah, if you're a tax advisor, it's not at all interesting. Yeah, and, but you mentioned there, actually, you know, the partners looked at this and went, wow, instead of having, you know, junior tax consultant there for two days, this does it in a second. Actually, I'm thinking, what did the junior tax associate think? And how did you how did you manage that? Because if I'm a first or second year tax advisor, apologies, it's not a yeah. space I know, I'm looking at that thinking, well, hang on, this thing's going to take my job. Yeah. So I'm, to your point about even if I want to make partner, I'm almost seeing a, a chasm open up between the sort of experience levels. How, how did you manage that? And what do you... What do you say to them or, or reprioritize them on to give them the experience to grow in a career? Yeah. No, we, as a leadership team, we were incredibly worried about just that question. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, we like our people. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the partners of the future. And, and you're right. So here, here along comes this marvelous bit of technology, which is going to take away a very large part of what they currently do. And we were very, very nervous about that. And we gave them this technology and they said, oh, good. Did you think we enjoyed that? <laughs> do you think we enjoyed going through a 3,000 line spreadsheet line by line and attaching a tax code to each item? Do you think that was fun for us? <laughs> um, and, and, and basically, what, you know, what they've said is that's great because actually what I can do now is the bits of my job that I enjoyed in the first place. I mean, I mean effectively, what we're doing is we're taking away the, the routine mundane stuff. So for the people who are currently in that job, this is marvellous. This is, this is, you know, it's someone who, who used to ride a horse to work and we suddenly give them a car. So they like that. Now, it, it's, it's true that in the future, therefore, we're going to need fewer of them. There's no doubt about that. And it's also true that this, this was one of the ways in which they learned how to do the things they were going to have to, you know, learn, supervise others doing in the future. Yeah. But it was a pretty, it was a pretty inefficient way of learning. Mm. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think what we're going to have to do and what we've convinced them we can do is, is give them that learning in other ways. And in fact, actually, what we'll probably do is we'll probably develop AI-based systems for some of that learning as well. I mean, you know, a few years ago, chess computers got better than the best human being at, at playing chess. And now, how do, how do most people learn chess? Well, it used to be by playing endless games against other humans. Now, actually, computers teach them. 
And that's, that's a much more efficient way of learning how to play chess than playing if you, than you and I playing. That's a pretty inefficient way of doing it. And so actually, I, I think a lot of professional learning and consulting and other professions is, is going to be AI-driven in future. And I think it'll be much more, much more interesting and much more efficient than learning on the job. Like you say, actually, and I, that is really the crux, isn't it? Is if you can take away the, the mundane, the procedural, I, I have friends who are accountants, um, which I appreciate is different from tax, but I understand yeah. that its foundation is the same. Yeah, um, and the, they have all previously mentioned the challenges of, yes, the junior years are spent doing things that are rather dull. And so if you can change that, you know, that's obviously going to help them and, and keep them. And it's true of lawyers and doctors as well, by the way. I mean, I mean that's, that's, how, that's how the professions work. I want to come on to what clients think because there's, yeah. there's an interesting thing there. But to your point there around, so chess, I, I think you're right in the analogy of actually, firstly, we'll enjoy playing, you know, maybe we'll have a game of chess sometime. I think yeah. there's an element of something like that that's the enjoyment. But to your point, if you want to get good, yeah. you can use a computer. Actually, to some of those skills around storytelling, relationship management, and it might just be they need to be trained differently, but some of those are picked up by doing the grind in the junior years because and you know a client comes over let's say and says how's that spreadsheet going and you're behind but you need to be able to tell them it'll be ready for next friday or whatever it is how will you or do you approach giving people those softer skills that in part do only or i think may only come from that sort of interaction that might be removed from putting a system in or a robot or an ai solution i think i think you'll still have all of those situations in the future it's just that you'll have fewer humans having those conversations and, those, and getting into those situations. So, you know, you'll, you'll still have a client who says, you know, why the hell isn't my spreadsheet ready? You, yeah. promised, you promised it was going to be ready today and it's not. I mean, the, the fact that the problem is with your technology rather than the problem is with your junior consultant, it, it is, one level is irrelevant. So you're still going to have people managing those projects, whereas today they're managing people. In the future, they're going to be managing a mixture of people and technology. So actually, I think you'll have all of those experience, experiences. You just won't have as many, many people yeah. in the business. You know, there won't be the pyramid. Because that's a really, a really interesting point as well. Is you know, to the point around partners saying, "Wow, this system's great." Mm. A large element of partner remuneration is built on the pyramid. Yeah. So you know, partners cost more than well at a day rate basis than they deliver. But in a world where, to your point, you know, you've mentioned with systems like this, we will need less consultants. Yeah. How do you then redesign or reposition your offering so that when you go to a client, and let's take, we'll, we'll stick with tax as, I'm, as best I can, so apologies if I've got anything wrong here, but let's say I need to do your annual tax, and usually it costs a million pounds because that's the day rate, and that's the days. But now I only need half the people. How do you in that world manage those relationships or those conversations to still, I assume, achieve the same revenue to enable the partners to achieve the same revenue they want? And, and what you're raising here is is probably the fundamental question for us for the next few years because mm. this, this way of I mean you know we the moment we swap we swap time for money I mean, that, that's yep. that's our business model actually it's one that dates right back to to the Middle Ages and it's not only our mindset it's our clients' mindset Definitely. so when you when you buy a lawyer or a consultant or an accountant that's how you pay for them. Yeah, and, and you're right. The the, I mean, if if we go to a if we go to a, uh, one of our clients and say, you know what, we can do your job in 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 half the time now, they'll say, great, I will give you half the money. Yeah, and and it and it's and so there are there are two challenges there. First of all, how do we ourselves change our business model? And secondly, how do we persuade our clients that that's what we're doing? And and the, I mean, there's a simple answer to your question, but achieving that simple answer is very different. So the the, the simple answer is. We now have to charge based on the value we create. 
not on the inputs we put into the job. So that, I mean, that, you know, that's it. The difficulty is, is rewiring ourselves and our clients to do it that way. And, and that's going to be very, very hard to do. I mean, as ever, you know, with technology, the technology itself is not easy, but it's the easy bit. Yeah. It's, the, it's the people and culture change around the technology that, that's the problem. Well, and that's, uh, to your point, Lee, that move of proposition from time for money to time for value is, like you say, is the, is the I appreciate, it's, it's the right answer, it's the getting there. To that point around the pyramid, do you see it slimming all the way down? Because structurally, if we can convince clients that the value is the same, so if it's a million pounds for X days, it's still a million pounds because the output's the same. Going forward, I assume at some point, someone will come in to try and do it cheaper. Yeah. How do you see the responses? And like you say, it's it's a difficult question you're still answering, but is it that the pyramid will be reduced across the board? So instead of 10 tax partners, you have two, I'm just picking numbers out of thin air. Or is there another way that internally that that cost structure will have to change to, to accommodate it? I mean, I mean, you're right. No one knows the answer to that question, and that, that includes me. My guess is that... that you, 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 your pyramid will become a, a cylinder, if you like. So I think, I mean, if, if you look at some law firms, their, their leverage ratios are much, much smaller than ours. So, you know, one to five, one to six. So I, so I, th- I think we'll probably go back to, to something that's much narrower, maybe cylindrical. But, but the other thing, the other part of this is, is what we've been talking about so far is how we use technology to automate what we currently do. But actually, technology gives us a chance to do a whole series of other things we don't currently do. And as we create those new businesses... I'm not quite sure how, how the business model will look for those in terms of, of, terms of a pyramid. Mm-hmm. So, so that's going to be interesting too. I mean, there's, a, there's an old business being automated, but there are, but there are new businesses being created too. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to change the way our business model works. I mean, there, there just is no better time to be a consultant than right now. Because, <laughs> because I mean, you know, what, what you're seeing is, is you know, no kidding, you're, you're seeing the first major shift in the consulting business model in its, in its in, entire mm-hmm. history. Oh, and, and I completely agree. And I, you know, I think if we, it almost comes back to what you said right at the start of the, the skill set you would see in the perfect consulting business. Because if you're a junior consultant and you're looking 10 years, 20 years ahead, actually those skill sets, to your point, that while you might want to be involved in machines and technology, if you're looking to build a skill set that can sustain some of those skills that are outside of the technology sphere, but complementary to potentially have a, I don't want to say a, a longer shelf life, because things are changing so fast but potentially give you some future proofing and some protection against that yeah no that that's that's right and and again you know you we're, we're, what we're trying to do is is to recruit some people with different skills and have them experiment in some of these new areas so we, so we're trying to find out what works and what doesn't work and therefore what skills we need and, and that's so it's, it's going to be an iterative process of figuring out what that business model looks like in the future yeah and I did say we might touch on it, and I think we've got time. So I do. I, I want to pick up on the office because you mentioned there around, and you mentioned a bit before about the sort of the glass corporate palace. I love the phrase, by the way, um, versus the, the sort of I guess what you call a different office. Yeah. But actually, how did you decide to base yourself here? I'll ask why as well because obviously you you mentioned some of the rationale, but be good to understand for this specific case why why you chose to base yourselves here, and what this indicates more broadly about the change in the industry. Yeah. I mean, you, you met Kim Peichel on the way in. Yeah. Uh, and Kim runs our AYX team, which is our kind of central innovation team. And like, like most of my ideas, most of my best ideas are actually Kim's ideas. <laughs> and, and moving here was, was Kim's idea. Mm. But the, basically, it, it, I mean, it was a very straightforward thought, which is that environment changes conversations. Yeah. So when, it, when I 
we talk to clients about innovation and technology in our glass palace, then I think really, although although we had good conversations and often we won work, you, there, there was a sense that that actually, you know, you guys are talking to us about technology and you're talking to us about innovation, but here you are in your suits and ties in a, in a really conventional corporate office. Yep. Do, do you guys really get what you're talking about here? Are you really the best people to advise us on all of this? If you, if you bring clients into this building, you can almost see them as they come through the door, look around and think, oh, I hadn't expected this. And, and then, then I think they believe we get this completely. You know, without any any further credentials, if you like, this just changes the conversation that we have with our clients. So that's why we're here. It it changes the conversation with our clients, and it also changes the way our our own people think. You know, here we're surrounded by sort of about eighty startups around here. Some of whom, by the way, are trying to disrupt bits of my business. They they want to eat my my lunch, and and that that is a completely different environment to you know to working either out with a client or working in a in a traditional big four office. Yeah, and. I think it's a really key point you highlight, and I think stems more broadly than just offices. And actually, if you're going to say you're you're focused on innovation, you need to be doing innovative things. I think there's a lot in in the industry that talk about talk a good game, but actually less that walk well, the walk. You need to behave differently. I mean, I mean, you know, you, unless you behave differently, you'll never <laughs> you'll never do different stuff. Yeah. That's kind of obvious, but but it, but you're right. It, it, it's amazing how many people don't actually get that. No, completely. I'd say, I think it's a Tony Robbins quote. If you do what you always do, you'll get what you've always oh, got, well, um, good which I you know, fully agree yeah. with. The interesting challenge that potentially arises, and you can tell me if it is or does, or and if it does, how you manage it. Because in clients, you, you do see there's a rise of innovation teams. Yeah. And at their worst, that can become a, in effect, a palace for, an innovation palace. But how have you managed... Moving over here, like you say, has had great benefits for innovation in the team here um, with EYX. How have you managed that relationship with the the glass palace, as you yeah. call it, to to ensure that there is that collaboration and ideas come from the whole business, not just from this side, this office? Yeah, and, and the quick answer to that is by not spending all my time over here in, in Shoreditch. I mean, the, I spend a third of my time with clients, a third here in, in Shoreditch, and a third back back in the in the head office, mm-hmm. um, talking to my colleagues. And actually, what I wear varies dramatically depending on where I am. So, I mean, you know, it, I mean, sometimes it's, it's jeans and a T-shirt and sometimes it's a suit and tie. So, you know, all of this is, is if you like, a change management problem. So, you know, there's no point in having a, a marvellous EYX team out here if, if the rest of the organisation isn't changing. You know, my, my job is to change the rest of EY and that's how Steve measures me. So, you know, unless I can persuade them to do different things and behave differently, then basically we should retire me, I think. <laughs> um, and and one, of the, one of the key things that helps in that is Steve himself, you know, our chairman, because everybody knows that because I report to him, therefore he takes this very seriously too. So when, when often with, with clients, often with other organisations, you know, you see the innovation team is, is somewhere down in the bowels of the organisation reporting to the person who reports to the person who reports to the CIO who reports to the, the CEO. And just organisationally, you can see they're not they're not very important, and therefore they're not going to have influence. But but everybody knows this is one of Steve's top three priorities, and that, and that's just obvious from the organisation chart too. Mm-hmm. So so a lot of the you know most of my great ideas come from Kim Paykel, and and most of my authority comes from Steve Varley, Really, I mean, all, <laughs> all I am is a kind of transmission mechanism for these things. But no, but seriously, you know that that's incredibly important that the, the, mm-hmm. the boss 
sees this as important and tells everybody on a continual basis that this is important. Mm. And I think like you, you highlight that key point of not staying in one place, not being this is innovation and you're over there and actually being seen around the office. Yeah. And you mentioned there around, you know, your remit is to change EY in, in, yeah. in this sense. What have you found as the biggest challenge or the biggest surprise to you in, in changing that culture? Is there anything that you thought, oh, that would be really easy and actually you've gone, wow, bloody hell, I did not think that would be as hard as it was. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the thing I didn't quite understand was how difficult it is to change an organisation with our particular culture. Because we, we built our culture up over 150 years and, it, and it's based on not screwing things up. And, and, and that's incredibly important to our business because, you know, you, if you're doing an audit, you want the auditors to get the right numbers, yeah. otherwise very bad things happen. If someone's giving you tax advice, if they give you the wrong advice, you can go to jail. Yeah. If someone's valuing a, a company for sale, if they get the wrong valuation of it, you're, you're underpaying or overpaying by perhaps hundreds of millions of pounds. You know, if you hand over an envelope at the Oscars and you hand over the wrong envelope, and that wasn't EY, of course, that was, that was PwC. <laughs> but but, but the, the reason that made the headlines is, is that, I mean, first of all, it was the Oscars, but, but secondly, it was a big four firm. Big four firms don't make mistakes. They don't screw things up. And, and, and innovation and changing an organization like ours is actually all about running lots of experiments, most of which screw up. So if you if you have a culture which which is based on not screwing up, how within that culture do you do you experiment and take risks and, and make lots and lots of mistakes? How do you do that? And that and that's that's quite a hard thing to do. And it's much harder than I thought it was going to be. And I think that's a a really interesting perspective. And like you say, the that challenge because it's a completely different mindset, isn't it? And actually yeah. What are some of the components structurally you can actually put in place to do that? Because moving, you know, we're not to go into all of the detail, but yeah. if people are remunerated, promoted, and their careers are based on, like you say, not screwing, not up. screwing up, actually, how do you move to a world where even it's okay to screw up 1%? Because that's a, you know, an infinite in increase from 0%. <laughs> that's right. And, and, and the answer is, is that you don't ask the same people to do that. So, so you know, there's, there's no point in asking an auditor who, who is focused on getting the right answer for four days a week to then be kind of experimental and risk-taking on the fifth day. Mm. That, that's not the way of doing it. I mean, you know, we, we want our existing business to go on. I mean, we are brilliant at what we do in our existing business. We want to go on being brilliant. We don't want, therefore, to change the culture of the people who've made that a brilliant business. So what, what we're trying to do is, is, therefore, set up, you know, if you like, kind of separate teams who are licensed to do the new stuff, to license to have a slightly different culture. But, but to do that in a way that the two parts of the business can talk to each other. And, that, and that's the hard bit, you know, is, is getting the leaders of that business to, to be prepared to switch mindsets slightly when they're thinking about, you know, today's services, today's clients, and, and then fostering, you know, seeding money into investments within their own business, if you like. So that, that's how we're trying to do it. I mean, and, and you know, come back in 10 years' time, you'll never be successful. <laughs> well, let's, let's have a follow-up um, and see, see how much of it came true. And I, it brings us on to one, so got two last questions after this, but I want to touch on something that you mentioned when we spoke ahead of this interview, because I think it, it talks very well to that point around partners becoming more open-minded. And um, it, was a, it was an interesting point you highlighted that actually when we were talking about the things you do outside of EY, you mentioned that for you, your advice to senior partners is they need to broaden their horizons. Yeah. You know, if you've been a consulting partner for, I will, you can tell me how long those people you were talking about have been partners. Yeah. But actually, what you meant by 
that broadening of horizons, why people should do it, and actually when they should start? Um, well, I think they should start. I mean, I think they should start straight away. I mean, I think generally what happens to us is, as, as we go up through the education system is, is our, our horizons broaden and broaden and broaden. Mm. And you know, university is usually a great time for for doing that. And then and then we tend to come into a profession, and then they begin to narrow and narrow and narrow. So, so I, I think I think you should start, you know, maintaining that breadth, if you like, from from day one. And and what I'm what I'm talking about is is basically trying to meet people with different experiences and different ways of thinking you don't have to agree with them all you don't have to adopt their ways of thinking but but you you know you you want to hear about about stuff that's going on and and so it doesn't surprise you and so sometimes you can pick up on that thinking and use it and i think also you then want lots of different experiences you know you you want to know how to to run a business long before you're ever going to get a chance to do it in work, but you also probably want to understand the people that, that, that if you're a consultant, the people your businesses, are, your clients are selling to. You know, so if they're selling consumer products, you know, who, who buys washing powder? Who buys these kind of things? And by, by broadening your horizons, by meeting different kind of people, you'll, you'll, be a much better, you'll have a much better understanding of your clients' clients, if you like. No, really, really useful. And I don't think we have time to touch on the startup side. So maybe at some point, maybe in that, hopefully before 10 <laughs> years, we'll do, okay. we'll do the round two. Yeah. Um, but I think, like you say, I've sensed a recurring theme during our conversation of actually, if you want to advise people on something, you really should have lived that thing however for however short a time to, to get that, that in-depth, that real personal insight so you can then share that with those looking for advice. Yeah, and, and also if you, if you want to... You know, if you want to help someone, you've got to try and get inside their head. And, and if you've if you if you've experienced what they're experiencing, you've got a much better chance of getting inside their head than if you've not. So you know, it's useful from that perspective as well. Completely. So last two questions, uh, and these are ones that I, I ask all of my guests, uh, and some of it you might take from your your three month period defining the role. But I leave these open, and these are more guides. So the first the first question is a, is about books. Yeah. So. I'm a very keen reader. Um, probably need to broaden my horizons a little bit in what I read. I read a lot of business <laughs> books. Um, but I'm always interested to get the take from my guests of actually, what are the book or books that have had have either had the most impact on you or you have found yourself giving to others most often? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think there's, there's lots, so it's quite hard to pin it down to one. But it, well, it, and it can be more than yeah, one. No, no. Well, I, if I were to pick, try to pin it down to one author, though, I think it would be George Orwell. Okay. Who, who, I mean, is still, I mean, 100 years after he was born, is still the best example of how you write persuasive written English. I mean, he could, he could craft an argument with, with beauty and economy and force like nobody else. So, I, I, funny enough, I, I wouldn't particularly get people to read his novels, which are not, not his <laughs> best work. I mean, Animal Farm is a brilliant work of satire, but, but his essays that he wrote are, are just brilliant. And 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 particularly the the ones he he wrote about how a uh, democratic socialist could love Britain, which is you know quite an old and hierarchical you know uh, country, are, are great. They're they're fantastic. They you know and they they still illuminate stuff. So I, I would kind of force everybody to to read Orwell and particularly his rules for writing. If if mm. we only followed Orwell's rules for writing, everything would be much well. We are much much better place. So that's probably who I'd. I would force you at gunpoint to read. No, and no, I always like in these interviews when I get someone completely different or a completely different take on it. And no one has said George Orwell yet. So I think that's a really... And your point around written English, again, we, we don't have time to go into, but for an industry that prides itself on presentation we have and communication, 
written English never seems to be the strong point of consultants. Weird that, isn't it? <laughs> Given that our job is to influence people and you know, <laughs> to try to sell work or to adopt our conclusions, it's weird that we can't write well. Exactly. Well, and I will put uh, links to, I'll find them on, on the internet and I'll put links to all of those in the show notes so people can go and read them. Uh, and then the last question, and this may touch on things we've talked about before, but, but gives you a chance to recap if it does, is you have three people in front of you uh, and you can give one piece of advice to each. Yeah. And those people are, the first is someone just entering the world of work. So they may have just finished uni or be entering your graduate program, let's say. The second is someone who, to use consulting parlance, would be a manager level, so four, five, six years in. And then the third would be someone who's approaching partners. So again, I believe the correct partners is director level at EY, and they're on the cusp of becoming a partner. And as I say, the question would be, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Well, let me, let me kind of do it in reverse order, if, that, if that's Of course. Right. I mean, the, the person approaching partner, what I'd say to them is, is the, the way you're going to be measured is, is on is... Are you building our business? So not not are you doing good projects or or you know uh, can you sell to clients? But are you building our business? I mean, are, are you sustainably generating a bit of a bit of our business that will go on to contribute for for a decade to come? That's 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 what a partner is, and people often miss that point. They think it's actually about individual sales or clients or teams. It's it's not actually. The question is, are you building our business? If you are, we'll make you a partner, and if you're not. We won't. So that that's the that's kind of the thing to to focus on. I think in the middle point of your career, it, it really is what you've probably done in the first part of your career is, is you built you've you've done the basics, you've done the field work, and you've probably built some expertise somewhere, you know, technology or supply chain or strategy or something like that. So the, then then the advice is, and so what's what where's the breadth to go along with all of that detailed expertise? Where's the breadth? Because when it comes to influencing senior clients. They they're not they're going to take the depth as red, quite frankly. You know, when you walk through the door with an EY brand, they they're going to assume you've got all that, so yeah. they're not going to examine you on that. But what they're going to be interested in is have you got the breadth to understand their business challenges, their personal situation. So how are you going to how are you going to develop breadth when you're just entering consultancy? What I'd say is is you know, absorb the stuff we're going to teach you we're to, because we are going to we're going to be very good at teaching you the basics, the field craft, if you like. But from the start. Think about how could we do this better? Because you will have a unique perspective. You've not got used to doing it the traditional way. Yeah. You know, you're not yet been brainwashed. So how could we do this better? And most of the good ideas I, I get for how to change our business and improve our business come from people in their first couple of years. So be continually from day one thinking about how you change the thing you've just joined. Fantastic advice, and I think a great place for us to, to finish today. So thank you yeah, so thank much you. for your time. Been been great conversation, really interesting to get your perspective. If anyone wants to find out more about yourself, about EY, about EYX, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, let, let's start on LinkedIn, because I'm, I'm dead easy to find, and uh, we can start the conversation there. Brilliant, Harry. Well, thank you very much for this, and all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.